You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup, and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand, as formerly, when you were his cupbearer. Only... Remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him.
Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 557. Today is Saturday, February 11th, 2023. And of course, that was a little reading from Genesis chapter 40. Actually, the whole of Genesis chapter 40, where Joseph interprets two prisoners' dreams right in the midst of of his imprisonment. He is a prisoner wrongfully accused after having been sold into slavery by his own brothers, after having told his family of his dreams and having already from the jump incurred the hatred of his brothers for being daddy's favorite. That's really what it came down to was that Jacob preferred Joseph. He had 12 sons He very obviously, very conspicuously favored Joseph. And the reason is given in the text, which is very interesting to me. It's not irrelevant. It's not unimportant that Jacob loved Joseph because he was the son of his old age. But you fast forward and here is Joseph and he's put in charge of the cupbearer and the baker, both of whom are apparently suspected of having done something they shouldn't have done or conspired in something that they shouldn't have conspired in. Maybe it was some espionage. Maybe somebody was leaking information to the press and Pharaoh knew it had to be one of these two guys. And so while he was trying to figure it out or while the investigators were doing their work, they were just going to be in house arrest taken care of for now. But then on his birthday, he already knows what the outcome is going to be. And for his birthday, he is doing two things at the same time. He is raising the cupbearer back to his former position because apparently the evidence exonerated the cupbearer and he is putting the baker to death. So apparently the baker was guilty. I would speculate But what we do know and don't have to speculate about is that these two have dreams at the same time. God gives them dreams, which then Joseph is also given the ability to interpret. And this is wild stuff. Actually, truth be told, Genesis is just chock full of really incredible and amazing narrative and not boring and not tame and not sanitized. If your primary way of understanding or knowing Genesis in particular is secondhand, or if it's a little bit dusty and it's been a while since you've read Genesis, if your primary impression of Genesis is that it's a point of contention, how we came to be, whether God just created us by speaking us into existence in six days along with the rest of creation, or whether he oversaw evolution, or whether we can even possibly know based on what Genesis 1 through 3 
records and tells us, do yourself a favor and read the entirety of the book of Genesis. I am going through it one chapter per day. Even if I miss days, I do. I just go back. I go back and I catch up and I'm listening to the Bible on this great little app that you should definitely check out as well if you haven't heard of it yet. Dwell is this great little app. I can't recommend it highly enough, but I open that up and it's ready for me. It saves where I last was listening and I just hit play and it picks right back up and reads. And every day it does this automatically. It's probably a feature I could turn off if I wanted to, but I kind of like it. Every day, there's a new narrator who is reading the selected passage or passages. And so yesterday, there was one narrator, and today, it's a different narrator. And the day before yesterday, there was a different narrator. And it's it's nice, right? They're, they're all well-voiced, all of the narrator voices. So definitely do check it out. But here I am. I'm 42 chapters into Genesis for the year. And that's the primary thing I actually want to talk about in this episode. I'm going to save the bulk of what I have to say, what I want to say until the end of this episode. But just to start us off, consider the case of Joseph. There are these very personal details that are included in his story, whether it's the story of his interaction with his brothers and with his father, whether it's the story of his being in Potiphar's house as a slave, whether it's him here in this house arrest prison type situation. There are these great little details that are thrown in. And why is that? And that that's the big question I want to ask towards the end of this episode. And I'll delve into a few more examples to drive the point home. But why, right? Why is this given to us in God's word? We'll get into that here in just a minute. But first, but first, you've got to watch this viral vice panel on Asian hate, where one dude holds his ground against all the Wokies. Harris Rigby over at Not The Bee shares as of yesterday and there are some clips, and I watched all these clips that are embedded in the post from Harris Rigby. I don't recall which ones have a little bit of language. Please bear with me. I'm not promoting that this is the way we should all talk, but it is what these people on this panel had to say. And so I'm going to go ahead and play this collection of clips from the vice panel on Asian hate. And then I have some thoughts for you. Take a listen. Assimilation. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is is it a burden? Is it an opportunity? It's not just a great thing. It's a necessary thing. No society can hold together where people have nothing in common. They don't speak the same language. They don't practice the same things. And, you know, you may look at something like just food habits or what you eat and think that's fairly frivolous. But the truth of the matter is that on a broader level, when we're talking about more big picture things, differences in race, culture, religion, all these things, people have fought wars, violent wars, killed each other over these things for thousands of years. If America is to hold together, 
assimilation, not just good or bad, necessary. I don't think it's going to be possible for America to survive as a stable functioning society if people don't, to some degree, say, well, here's what we're going to commonly agree upon. But who gets to choose it? The majority culture, I suppose. And what's the the majority culture? people with power. And who's people with power? People with power. White people. Well, I don't don't know if that's... I'm going to say it. White people. It's okay. I don't know if that's necessarily so true. I mean, Wait, can you, you unpack? Yeah. yeah. I don't. Let's I don't elaborate. Think, I don't think a particularly white, quote unquote, interest controls things like in America. pop culture. Do you believe well, white think, supremacy exists? I think there are people who believe in it. And I think there's people who all believe that their race is superior. So you don't believe in white supremacy? Do you believe America is a white supremacist state? No, not at all. And not found no white supremacist state would even like allow us to be doing this. Like I don't, I don't understand. So white supremacists, there's just KKK people walking. I mean, Actually, I go around New York City. I notice that like I guess Brooklyn a little bit different. Most of the people here are not white, and they're doing their thing. So I don't. Understand what does doing their thing mean to you? Going to work. Are they making? Working. Are they making the same amount of money? Statistically, it is true that Asians, right, on average make more money like in terms of medium, make more money, better test scores, get into better colleges, all that stuff. I think the question is, why is that? And I don't know, model minority, whatever that label wants That's to be. That's actually a not, myth because not, we cannot be... Um... Well, no, listen, well, let me finish my point. We need to observe what makes people successful and unsuccessful. And I think when you look at trends that are generally true in the Asian community, not of everyone, but are generally true, usually you have families that are sticking together. You have, um, you know, people are taught to work hard in school, not get into trouble. I think that translates to why Asians en masse are successful. And I don't think you have to be Asian or white for that matter to not have kids out of wedlock, not, you know, commit crime, not, not cause trouble, what whatever happening? it is. It's just a matter of like, well, common sense. That's what makes people successful. And if that's so-called assimilation, having a nuclear family, buying a house, going to school, whatever it is, then yeah, okay, call me a pro-assimilation then. I think there's a difference between assimilation and erasure. Yes. Okay, that's two clips. That's two separate clips. I don't know how much difference there was really to comment on in the full video in terms of what was said in between those two clips or which one came first. I I don't know. I, I frankly don't know because I'm just playing the small selections that are a minute or so, a minute and some change that are shared in the not the B article or post. Uh, I tried. I tried to click through to the full video just to get it to play in the embed, and it wanted to take me to Twitter, where I was reminded that I am uh, not on Twitter still. But a couple, a couple of comments. Uh, of course, I'll include a link in the description for this podcast episode. You can go check it out. But a couple of things to note. Uh, one, the gentleman in the suit, he has come dressed for battle. <laughs> he is armed with facts and with logic and with reason. He's very measured. He's very respectful, but he's also very bold and standing his ground. He gets interrupted a few times and he says, well, let me finish my point. Hold on. And then he continues on. He's not getting all upset and angry, but he's very uh, firm, right? He's firm and he says, well, hold on, hold on, just wait. And the looks that you can't see when you're just listening to the audio here on this podcast episode, the looks on the faces of the other people who are participating in the panel discussion, when he's talking, they are 
to use the common vernacular, they are triggered. They, they are triggered by his reference to not having children out of wedlock. They are triggered by his saying, have a nuclear family. They're triggered by his saying, do well in school and work hard and you will do well. And they have no good justification. They have, they have no good reason for it. They just feel a feeling and they even ask, right? So, so that first clip that I played, the, the one guy wearing green sitting down and to the left from our angle, uh, from the camera's angle. I mean, he's just like mouth agape, shocked and just looking around to the other panelists like, can you believe that he's saying this? What? And then the gal with the purple hair is like, what is happening? And, and of course, that's not that, that that's not a contribution, except actually, I would argue to the point that the gentleman in the blue suit is making, which is that the majority will decide what the culture is, what the norm is, what the standard is for a culture. The majority will, and I'm not talking elections and I'm not talking voting, but I'm talking in terms of what expectations are and a lot of the unspoken rules that we would call good manners or being polite or what is expected. The majority will end up deciding what that is. The majority culture will. And that isn't necessarily going to be white people right it's it's not it's it's not necessarily particularly in the decades ahead with demographic trends being such as they are now i'm not necessarily worried about that i i actually truth be told i actually am totally okay with people from all over the world coming to the united states of america with all kinds of different skin color and accents you know, if English is a second language, but we're all trying to speak English because we want to be able to understand each other and communicate, I'm actually totally okay with all kinds of different accents because they pronounce things differently based on what their mother tongue is. I'm totally okay with different styles of dress, right? Different ways of styling one's hair and studying and working and preparing food and entertaining and living life. I'm, I'm totally okay with that within the boundaries of what God's word says. And if it just so happens that there are a lot of ways to abide by God's word and to honor God, and it doesn't matter if you wear a sarong or if you're wearing a three-piece suit or if you're wearing a wife beater and, uh, you know, tracksuit pants. Cool. Great. That doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother me the idea that there would be lots of different shades of skin making up the United States of America's demographic. My big concern here is not about whiteness the way that I would understand whiteness or you would probably understand whiteness if you're listening to this podcast. My concern is with the hostility towards whiteness as it's being defined by the left. Whiteness as it's being defined by the left is not about skin color. It really isn't. It's really about a hostility towards Judeo-Christian morality, 
and the Judeo-Christian worldview, on the one hand, and also a hostility towards Greco-Roman norms that are still with us, that we still have traces of intermixed with our Judeo-Christian morality. And and let me just be very clear. I, I study works of antiquity. I read them. I think everybody should. I think everybody should read Plutarch. And I'm not quite finished with it, but I'm, I'm making good progress. I think that everybody should read Cicero. I think that everybody should read the classics and study the Greeks and the Romans. Absolutely. But I'm totally okay with if we find that certain norms and traditions and values and habits of thought in particular have been passed down to us from the Greeks and the Romans, but we don't find them in God's word. I'm totally okay with us renegotiating which of those we uh, abide by, hold in high regard, apply, you know, and, and which we potentially swap out. I'm totally okay with that. But for the left, whiteness is hostile. Whiteness is hostile because whiteness really has to do with Western civilization, regardless of the skin color of the person who is being accused of white supremacy. And that's the problem. The very Asian gentleman in the blue suit here in the vice panel is not white. He is not a white person. He is not white people. But he could just as easily be accused of white supremacy by the left because whiteness isn't first and foremost about skin color. Now, a lot of the rank and file foot soldier types who have been brainwashed into believing this should be the majority culture. And then then they're in a pickle, right? It, when, when that happens, if that happens, God forbid, that wokeness becomes the majority culture and it does establish what the norms are and it does establish all the expectations for everybody, I, I feel for the folks who are just addicted to being outraged and looking for things to say, what is happening about that are very common sense, that are very straightforward, that are very not actually about whether your skin is white, but that universally work regardless, regardless what part of the world your ancestors came from. I feel for the folks who are addicted to being upset and angry because once they are undeniably the majority culture, they're going to have a hard to impossible time walking back the assumptions that they have. Now, if it turns out that what they were pushing for, the normalization of fatherlessness, the breakdown of the nuclear family, the hostility towards objective reality, you know, two plus two equals four is white supremacist. How, how is that? How is that possible? That two plus two equals four. If you are on a Polynesian island and that's all you've ever known and you've never seen a single white person, two plus two equals four. If you live in the deep, dark jungles of South America on the Amazon rainforest, and you've never met somebody who wasn't part of your tribe and the neighboring tribes that inhabit the deepest, darkest parts of the Amazon rainforest, two plus two equals four. If you, <laughs> if you are a man on the moon, <laughs> you've never even been to earth, two plus two equals four. It, there's just... And, and and here I say two plus two equals four because we're speaking English and those are the words that correspond to 
the numbers and the numbers added together make the bigger number and whatever you want to use as far as a language to express two and four and plus and equals. It's not white supremacy. It's not white supremacy to say two plus two equals four or to say that we should be logical and we should be rational and we should be factual and we should care about the objective truth. It's not. What is racist, though, is hostility towards anything that could even be associated with white people. If there's a hostility towards anything that would even be claimed to be white adjacent, that is racism. That is racism. And that does concern me. It doesn't concern me to think of having ethnic diversity at all. In fact, I read to the end and I know that when Christ returns or calls us all home, those who are in Christ from every tribe, every tongue, every nation will be gathered around the throne of the Lamb and they will be praising and they will be worshiping God. And if they're all worshiping in their own native tongue, that's beautiful. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. If they're all speaking English, I'll be really, really surprised. And (laughs) if they're not, if, if they're not all speaking English, I won't be upset. I won't be disappointed. <laughs> it's it's fine. <laughs> but this is fascinating. It's it's just absolutely fascinating to me that it really does come down to the values and it does come down to somebody telling young people, here's how the world works. Here's how the universe works. It's not that white people made it this way. It's that anybody who lives according to the way that the world works, the way that the universe works, the laws of the universe laid down by God himself, anybody who abides by those will do well. They will do well. They will prosper. That's what we call wisdom. And there's a difference between wisdom and folly. And it's not all just racism. See, that's that's the big worry for me is not that we're going to argue about whether racism exists or whether white supremacists exist. You know what? Yes. To his point, I, I totally agree with, I totally agree with the gentleman in the blue blazer. And you know what? There's a whole lot of people who have my skin color in my generation that quite frankly, I would not prefer. I would not side with or hang out with or be friends with as soon as I would be friends with the gentleman in the blue suit. And the reason for that is very simple because he doesn't strike me as racist at all. He strikes me as somebody who is being serious. He strikes me as somebody who is caring about the truth. And even if they're going to hate him for it, or they're going to mock him for it, or they're going to be upset or outraged or whatever, he's going to make it his goal to remain steady and press on and try to win them over through reasoned arguments, through good points. And quite frankly, I think that the folks who are around him shaking their heads, making shocked faces. I think that they would probably prefer to hang out with the white people in our generation who are woke. I think they would probably prefer those white people over the guy in the blue suit, because that's really what it comes down to. It's not first and foremost about race. This is first and foremost about values. This is first and foremost about priorities. This is first and foremost about on the one hand, some people wanting to work hard and succeed. And on the other hand, some people 
only being satisfied if everybody's making the same amount of money. Notice the question that's asked by the guy in the green shirt when the gentleman in the blue suit says that New York, Manhattan, they've got people of every skin color from all over the world. And what are they doing? They're doing their thing, going to work, hanging out, going to see a show, going to get some food. They're doing their thing. And the guy in the green shirt says, well, what does that mean? What does it mean that they're doing their own thing? Yeah, but are they making the same amount of money? Uh, Okay, there it is. There it is. Because what you're actually wanting is not an end to racism. What you're actually wanting is Marxism. What you're actually wanting is communism. And you've been all amped up, all wound up by the education system and by the mainstream media and by the pop culture. You've been all amped up into this frenzy about race because it allows you to be harnessed. It allows you to be enlisted in this cultural revolution. And please stop. Please, please stop. Please stop. Please do yourself and us all a favor and check out Orlando Feige's A People's Tragedy about the communist revolution in Russia. Do yourself a favor and check out Mao, the untold story about Mao Zedong's rise to power in China. Do us all a favor and educate yourself on the beginning, middle, and end of communist revolutions because it's not what has been suggested. The folks who are trying to utilize you, they want you to only pay attention to what you don't like in the current situation. The or else is critically important. The or what is critically important. And even if you don't know that now, you will. You will if you succeed. And I pray to God that you don't. I pray to God that you do not and that you open yourself up to being persuadable and to really studying this. But let's move on. Let's let's press on. Speaking of Asian folk and Asian hate and white people and communism, Chinese spy balloon passing over sensitive sites could collect communications, State Department reveals. Some reporting by Hank Berrien over the Daily Wire from the day before yesterday reads, and I quote, the State Department has admitted that the reputed Chinese spy balloon that floated over the United States for eight days, including vital national security sites, was equipped with antennas that likely could collect communications. That news came from a senior State Department official on Thursday. The Wall Street Journal reported, adding that the official revealed the balloon had large solar panels that could power collection sensors and that this balloon's manufacturer is involved with China's military. Information about the balloon, which flew over Montana, where a nuclear missile silo field at Malmstrom Air Force Base is located, was obtained by using high-altitude U-2 aircraft as well as debris left by the balloon after it was shot down on Saturday. Now, an interesting thing, a a quick update. You probably know this. I'm going to guess that you know this. But there was an additional object that was shot down Uh, just yesterday. The news broke, but actually it was shot down Thursday night. Uh, Here's another bit of reporting from the Daily Wire, because I'll admit I love me some Daily Wire. Ryan Saavedra published this one yesterday. 
F-15 fighter pilot explains why latest object shot down over Alaska is unusual. And I won't read the whole thing, but I'll just quote a few paragraphs here. An experienced F-15 fighter pilot told the media that some of the details released by U.S. officials about the object shot down over Alaska on Friday are, quote, unusual, end quote. The unidentified Pardon me. The unidentified object reportedly had a cylindrical shape and was much smaller in size than the Chinese spy balloon that was shot down last week. Quote, we have no further details about the object at this time, including any description of its capabilities, purpose or origin, said Pentagon spokesperson Brigadier General Pat Ryder. Quote, the object was about the size of a small car, so not similar in size or shape to the high altitude surveillance balloon that was taken down off the coast of South Carolina, end quote. At 40,000 feet, it actually was in the airspace or the altitude where civilian aircraft are typically to be found. So, yes, it it was a problem. Could it be a drone? Uh, It would seem so. Or at least that it was an unmanned aircraft. Apparently, they verified that it was an unmanned vehicle before shooting it down. I don't quite know how they did that or how fast this thing was. Lots of questions, not a lot of answers, at least for people like you and me just yet. But I bring it up in part because this is a current event, a developing situation between the U.S. and China. It could result in a hot war. It could be that we are actually outright fighting each other here very shortly. But I want you to consider that China wanting to take on the United States of America absolutely is going to do everything they possibly can to undermine America's strength. They absolutely are. And they have been. They have been. Given their worldview and given how they hold on to power in China and around the world in other countries that are not the United States of America, it would be highly surprising if they weren't trying to influence America's youth towards communism. And just think about that for a moment. What if our enemies, what if the communists in China were actually converting, if you will, brainwashing, if you will, America's youth into being little commies? So that if there's a war, those commies here in the U.S. will undermine our ability to actually defend our country. And if there isn't a war, then those commies in my generation and in the generations younger than us will implement communism. And then there won't need to be a war because we'll be converted from within by communist ideas infiltrating big tech and the education system and pop culture. What if, right? What if that is one of the tools at their disposal to try and accomplish regime change here by using our own education system against us, using our own communications technology online against us, using our own pop culture against us, all for the purpose of indoctrinating us and conditioning us, preparing us preparing the soil for communist rule. Is that a possibility? I think it's a very distinct possibility. In fact, I'm convinced that's exactly what they've been doing. If you don't think so, well, then I would ask why. 
Why don't you think that that could happen here? Why don't you think that that is happening here? And how else do you account for all of the commies? For that matter, too, if you don't think that the Chinese would do that, why? Right? Why do you think that they wouldn't if it would be an effective way to further their goals and their ambitions? If you don't think they can, well, why do you think so little of their capabilities that you suppose that's beyond them or that they're incapable? Why, you know, if you think they have the willingness, they have the motive, then why would you doubt that they have the means? And if you think that they have the means and the motive, then there is just flat no denying. There is no denying that they have the opportunity with the way that the left in this country is oriented already and has been oriented for decades. I think that this is something that's been working its way through America, through American culture for decades. And it's very quiet. It's very subversive. It's a very patient, slow acting poison, but it is a poison nonetheless. And the antidote really is truth <laughs> because communism is fueled by emotion, particularly envy particularly jealousy, wanting what somebody else has. You know, there was a post here the other day at the Reformed Conservative, and I don't typically comment. I'm on the board of directors for the Reformed Conservative, and I do glance at the notifications every now and then. I'll click through and read, but I don't engage quite a lot on TRC. But this one I did, and I'll go ahead and read it for you. I'll read for you the question that was asked, and also the answer that I gave. Jim Dye asks, what are the main biblical points you would make to another person to explain to them that the Bible contradicts political leftism and supports conservatism? Which I like. I like this question. I think it's a great question. Some other answers besides mine. Remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set up. Honor thy father and mother, both of those from Blake Blount. My answer is four verses, primarily. I know there are others, but four verses to lay a foundation. One, Romans 13, 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Second Corinthians 9, 6 through 7. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 1 Thessalonians 4, 10b through 12. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Lastly, 2 Corinthians 3.10. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. And there you go. There you go. I think... Those four verses, and you cannot, you cannot be a leftist and be a Christian. Those four verses. Romans 13, 8 tells us the ideal is to not owe anybody anything. That includes not having a debt. That also includes actually something of a repudiation of 
JFK's famous saying, ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. You know what? I'm sorry. First and foremost, we should be asking, what does God require of us? First and foremost, secondarily, how do I love my neighbor? You can build out from love your neighbor, single, single, singular, individual, the person who's next to you, the person in your proximity. You can work outward from that to the question of, well, who is my neighbor? And you just work out and out and out and out as you have the ability, but that is your requirement to love them. And to love them is not necessarily the same thing as everybody gets an equal share. And how do I know that? Well, 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 7. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So there's a principle here that has to do with righteousness and wisdom both at the same time. Also, also, you cannot support leftism. You certainly can't support socialism or communism when you read 2 Corinthians 9-7. Each one must, not can, must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. That excludes communism. That excludes socialism. Because communism and socialism, socialism is based on the guilt trip to where we're going to get you to shut up by making you sound like a really terrible person and making you feel really bad so that you don't raise an objection when we take your stuff. That is not, (laughs) that is not you deciding in your heart. That's the opposite. It's precisely the opposite of deciding in your heart what you will give and how and when and to whom. God loves a cheerful giver. And loves a cheerful giver. That's not an additional guilt trip, by the way. Don't don't read that as a, aha, well, you'd better not just give. You'd better be cheerful too. Otherwise, you're not even a Christian. No, that's not what it says. That's not what it's getting at. And how do I know that? Well, in part, I know that because I read 1 Thessalonians 4, 10, B through 12. Aspire to live quietly, minding your own affairs. Well, that pretty well rules out leftist activism, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Work with your hands. You know what? Pretty much the opposite of how Bernie Sanders has lived his entire life. Work with your hands. Even when he was part of an experimental commune back in the 70s. I think it was the 70s. Maybe it was the 80s, but I think it was the 70s. He got kicked out because he was so lazy. He he refused to do any of the work. (laughs) Even the commies were like, yeah, no. (laughs) You're just not working out, Bernie. (laughs) as we instructed you work with your hands mind your own business live quietly do this more and more so the goal is not less and less then more and more aspire doesn't mean that it's always possible it is not always possible so for instance for example when communists are trying to take over your country it's not possible to live quietly to the extent that you would like i i certainly would believe it or not my vision of the good life is me off the grid with my family in a nice big beautiful house built into the side of the hill i would have designed it myself built it with my own two hands truth be told 
barns and sheds and outbuildings, raising bison and dairy goats and chickens and us having a year-round garden and a greenhouse, doing aquaponics and aeroponics, having a ginormous library that you access through a hidden passageway if you can just pull a little marble bust of George Washington <laughs> to, to activate the door and make it open up. Then you just take that spiral staircase down into the bat cave full of books. That's my vision of the good life. Me, me actually, truth be told, my vision of the good life, the, the, the kind of writing that I wanted to do originally in the first place was writing fantasy novels. And honest to God. Someday, I hope, <laughs> my, my vision of the good life will come true because my dream come true is I sit on my front porch in a rocking chair off the grid writing the next Lord of the Rings or Chronicles of Narnia or Wheel of Time or Game of Thrones. And yes, you heard that right, the Game of Thrones. It wouldn't be any of those books or any of those series, but it would be the next great fantasy novel or series. That's my vision of the good life, a quiet life, working with my hands. And what is it that Paul writes in First Thessalonians? So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Again, 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 we see the, the, the Judeo-Christian ethic, the Judeo-Christian ideal. It's not necessarily always the observed reality. I grant but that doesn't mean that the standard is not the standard. The rule is the rule. The exceptions are just that. They are the exceptions, not the rule. But again and again, we see this theme. Be dependent on no one. Owe no one anything. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. What's yours is yours. Work for it. Work hard with integrity. Why? So that you can walk properly before outsiders. So you can have a good reputation. So that when people say ugly, awful, mean, hateful things about you, they don't stick. Because that's not how you are. That's not how you act. That's not how you treat people. That's not how you made your money. You made your money in an honest way. Actually, the, the villain here is not you for having worked hard and earned it. The villain is the mob of angry leftists with their torches and pitchforks who think their fair share of what you earned is everything. Second Thessalonians 3.10. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. You know what? No, you're not a charity case. If you're lazy, if all you do is just sit around in your purple hair and your nose rings complaining about how you don't have it because rich white people are keeping you down. No, the thing that's keeping you down is satanic commies who've convinced you that you shouldn't even work for it. You should just plot the downfall and overthrow of white people. It's insane. That's insane. You're not a victim. You're a villain or you're a fool or both. Repent. And and actually, honestly, if you're hungry, if you're hungry because you didn't go to work today, in fact, you quit your job so you could protest even harder, a little hunger might do you some good if it drives you to go out and earn it. But but friends, in order for us to have a culture and a society where you actually can go out 
and work and earn your daily bread and enjoy the fruits of your labors. We have to be the culture where when you say the politically incorrect thing, when you engage in wrong think or wrong speak or communicate unapproved opinions, they don't just pack you off to the gulags and they don't put you in concentration camps and they don't put you even in internment camps where they can then starve you to death. Because that is again and again, that is what the communists and the Nazis did to their political opponents and to the people that they deemed unfit. They put them in work camps because work is freedom. They worked them to death. They did not feed them once the food ran out because socialism doesn't work and communism doesn't work. Once the food ran out, they just started gassing people or shooting people. This is a big deal. It's not mysterious. It really is not a toss-up. You know, we had biblical training group last night, and it was the second in a two-part treatment by Gary Brashears over at biblicaltraining.org. He's from Western Seminary in Portland, Oregon. There's a two-part treatment of providence, God's providence. And the second part he explained his interpretation of Romans 9. It was really, really quite excellent. It was very excellent. And at the very tail end, they obviously didn't cut the end of the video hard because you can hear the camera guy saying, well, I've never heard that before. And Gary Brashears, they must have a really good rapport. I'm sure they do. But Gary Brashears is like, oh, what? You never read the Bible before? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the only people who think that it's a toss-up, whether we would be leftists or whether we would be conservatives, are the folks who have not been reading their Bible closely enough. If not, they've just not. You cannot read these passages here and so many others besides and come away thinking that communism is an option. Or you can be a Christian and a communist. You know what? The better a communist you would be, the worse a Christian, if you even could be a Christian and a communist. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind in Christ Jesus, friends. Moving on. I'll play one more clip here. This will be the last clip, and then I've got a story to recommend to you. I don't think we'll get into the story just yet. Not not this episode, but I hope to do a fuller treatment. But here's a clip. I'll play the clip first. This is Tulsi Gabbard testifying to the House Oversight Subcommittee on the weaponization of the DOJ and FBI. Tulsi Gabbard, former congresswoman from Hawaii, also former Democrat. Take a listen. More recently, U.S. Senator Mitt Romney accused me of treason, a crime that is punishable by death under our laws. I challenged him to back this, back this serious allegation up with evidence. What was this based on? There was no response, no explanation, no evidence, and certainly no apology. Now, these accusations are often shrugged off as, well, hey, it's politics. People say things about each other all the time. Now, that may be easy for some of you to say, but for somebody who wears the uniform, this is serious, and it's serious not only to me, but to my fellow service members and veterans, every one of us making a decision at some point in our lives to raise our right hand, prepared and volunteering to lay our life down for this country. 
What does that mean in reality? It means that before every deployment, in our own hearts, we have to make peace with the possibility that we may not come home. Hmm. So, you might be wondering, if you once knew, perhaps you've now forgotten, why it was that <clears throat> Mitt Romney called Tulsi Gabbard a traitor or implied that she was repeating treasonous lies. There's a piece from Sarakshi Rai from April 21st, 2022 at The Hill. Tulsi Gabbard demands retraction of Romney treason accusation. It all came down to her saying that there were 25 to 30 U.S. funded biolabs in Ukraine and that this was part of why Russia was going into Ukraine and why the U.S. was fighting so hard to defend Ukraine. Now, whether or not there's any truth to that, the claim that there are 25 to 30 U.S. funded biolabs in Ukraine, whether or not there's any truth to that is beside the point. Because calling somebody a traitor, calling somebody treasonous, that's a pretty significant claim. I think it should take more than talking about top secret biolabs that may or may not exist and that may or may not be the real reason why we're having this cat and mouse game with Russia over Ukraine. I mean, it's kind of like the whole business with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. There was a significant biolab in Wuhan, China, where the U.S. government, at the behest of Dr. Fauci, was funding gain-of-function research, and then it just so happened that COVID-19 was unleashed on the whole world. If it actually came from a lab in Wuhan, China, if COVID came from a lab in Wuhan, China, and was the result of experimentation, if it was, in fact, a science project that got out of hand, or if it was a biolab, to speak of such is not treason. But to have done such and to have unleashed it on the U.S. and the world in aid to a plot to take over the world in the interest of world peace, that would be treasonous. The, the actual doing of the thing, the funding of the gain-of-function research, while at the same time shutting down, locking down Western economies like that of the United States of America, the actual doing of the thing would be treasonous before talking about the doing of the thing would be treasonous. Now, if you say this thing is being done and it's not proven one way or the other, it's not proven false, it's not proven true, but there may or may not be evidence to support the claim. Before we go calling people traitors and arranging the date of their execution, maybe we should ask them, oh, I don't know, what evidence there is. That would be a better follow-on. That would be a better follow-on to say, okay, what evidence do you have? And then listen and persuade and change minds. How could it possibly be treasonous to say that the U.S. is funding biolabs in foreign countries when we know that that's already the case? We definitely know that that's the case in Wuhan, China, where COVID came from. 
And maybe there were uglier, darker, nastier things in the works in biolabs in Ukraine. I don't know. I don't know one way or the other. But it's kind of a big deal to call somebody a traitor just for talking about something that our government might be doing, possibly. And it would actually fit the profile. It would fit the profile of how our government has been acting in recent years and decades. I wouldn't put it past them. That doesn't mean it's true. But the trouble is that it's credible based on other things that we do know. The trouble is not that somebody would talk about it and say, hey, this is a problem. The problem is not talking about the problem unless we are one big dysfunctional family, which I suppose we are. But here again, I have more in common with Tulsi Gabbard on this particular question than I do with Mitt Romney. And so it's not, first and foremost, even just what political party does one or the other line up with. It has to be a question of what is true and what is false, what is right and what is wrong. Now, it's interesting on this point and actually going back to the vice panel Do you know what the definition of the word bigoted is? I think a lot of us hear that word. It's bandied about this or that person calls another a bigot. And whoever really slows down and defines what that word actually even means. It's such an awful, horrible, no good, rotten thing to be. But what is it? (laughs) What is a bigot? (laughs) According to Oxford Languages, Somebody who is bigoted is obstinately or unreasonably attached to a belief, opinion, or faction, in particular prejudiced against or antagonistic toward a person or people on the basis of their membership of a particular group. Similar words would be prejudiced, biased, partial, one-sided, sectarian, discriminatory, intolerant, narrow-minded, blinkered, illiberal, inflexible, uncompromising, fanatical, dogmatic, opinionated, chauvinistic, jingoistic, jaundiced, warped, twisted, distorted. Opposite would be tolerant. (laughs) Interestingly, opposite would be liberal, which is to say that the folks who are making it impossible to discuss things publicly, openly, honestly, in American life these days, they are not actually liberal. Can we be clear on that? They're not actually liberal. They are bigoted. They're bigoted against anything that would deviate even potentially from the leftist talking points because it's actually not liberalism that they want. It's leftism. It's totalitarianism. It is communism. They want the ideals of the communist manifesto, and they don't even know that. See, that's the crazy thing about it. That's the devilishly difficult part of it is that we have a lot of people who are bigots. And part of how we know which ones they are is that they're the ones who are constantly calling everybody bigots. If I can't say anything meaningful as a straight white male without being called a bigot, if I can't disagree with the tenets of the left... If I happen to say the same thing that the gentleman in the blue suit from the vice panel was saying about don't have kids out of wedlock, get married, work hard, finish school, get a good education, apply yourself, be honest, stay out of trouble, you will go far. 
If I get called a bigot for that, for one, the people who are calling me don't even know what it is. But for another thing, they are actually the bigots. But what are they bigoted against? And who taught them that? Where did they learn to be bigots in the way that they are bigots? That's where our attention should be directed, either to dismantle those places, to take them back, or to compete with them directly. Get at the root. Get at the root of what is making so many people obstinately and unreasonably attached to their belief, opinion, or faction relative leftism. That's where we need to go. Now, briefly, before we get into talking about Genesis and what I'm learning and being reminded of and being very refreshed by and surprised by and delighted sometimes, horrified other times by in Genesis, I want to tease something for an upcoming episode, maybe our next one. We'll see. We'll see what the news cycle and my reading list and random assorted thoughts have to say the next time I sit down to record. But The Gray Champion by Nathaniel Hawthorne, American author, 1804 to 1864, his book, Twice Told Tales, originally published 1837. I think it was republished 1851. The Gray Champion comes up in Generations by Neil Howe and William Strauss, which I am reading and I will be happy to tell you all about once I'm finished with it, maybe at the end of this weekend. But they bring it up. They bring up the gray champion, and I had never heard of it. My kids, I believe, have read Twice Told Tales for school, but I've never read it. I might have to remedy that. I want to talk about the gray champion maybe in our next episode. We'll see. We shall see. Stay tuned for that if you are a Nathaniel Hawthorne fan or are familiar with that short story. But moving on. Genesis 40, I read at the top of this episode. And as I said, I'm reading through the book of Genesis. I'm reading through the Bible, and it just so happens if you start at the beginning, you start in Genesis. There's no way around it. But I'm up to chapter 42. And in chapter 42, we see Joseph being reunited with his brothers, or shall I say, they show up and they don't recognize him. And he is the top dog in Egypt. He oversees the distribution of grain. He is second only to Pharaoh in all the land. The details that are included in Genesis 42 are, again, very personal They give us a robust picture of who Joseph was as a character. Not comprehensive, not in every detail. We don't know everything, but that's okay. We couldn't handle it if we knew everything. We're given enough to have a broad outline, a brief character sketch that is meaningful about who Joseph is, who his brothers are, how they relate to their father, how they relate to one another, and we see that the tables have turned in Genesis 42. That is to say, Joseph's brothers talked openly with one another about killing him, then settled on selling him into slavery. And that was the last they heard of Joseph. It took his coat of many colors that their father had given him as a symbol 
of his favoritism towards Joseph. They took that, they tore it to pieces, they drenched it in blood from some animal they slaughtered, and they presented it to their father and said, he's been torn to pieces. Do you recognize this? He's been torn to pieces. And that's the last that they've heard from, seen of their brother Joseph until now. And they don't recognize him because they're not looking for him. He's right there in front of them and they don't recognize him, which if you will, this is a picture of the incarnation in some sense. This is a type of Christ. We see in the gospel accounts that Jesus is born a Jew. He's born to Mary and to Joseph. Actually, he too goes to Egypt. An angel appears to Joseph in a dream and warns Joseph that Herod is looking for Jesus and Joseph should get Mary and Jesus out of there, take them to safety. But they don't stay in Egypt, just like the children of Israel didn't stay in Egypt and they weren't there from the beginning. They went to Egypt and then they came back to the promised land. So also Jesus, when he reveals himself, when he begins his public ministry, round about the age of 30, some recognize him as the Messiah, as the Son of God. But not all, even though he's right there and they've been hoping and praying and waiting for a Messiah for hundreds of years at minimum, thousands of years, really, if you want to be more accurate. The religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they either don't recognize him or they're so jealous that they want to kill him. There's a lot of parallels, but we see in Genesis in the story of Joseph, his actually being the one who is going to give them grain or give them grief. And he gives them both, but first a bit of grief. And with that grief, Joseph watches to see how his brothers relate to one another and how they relate to him. And they're speaking Hebrew. Interesting. We were just talking at the top of this episode about what language we are all going to use here in the United States. These Hebrew men there to get food after their father asks, why are you looking at one another? Which is a great little tidbit, like a very, very brief line, but very personal because it actually gives you a quick snapshot. The famine is in the land and they're all looking back and forth at each other. Like, what do we do? Who's going to step up to the plate? Who's got an idea? Who's going to go? I guess we'll all go. They're talking Hebrew in front of Joseph, who they don't recognize, and they don't think that he understands. And the funny part is he has an interpreter interpreting because, well, he doesn't want them to recognize right now, not yet. And maybe a part of him wonders if they will at a certain point. You know, we recently watched The Count of Monte Cristo, me and my kids and my wife. And when the hero of the story comes back after years in prison in the Chateau d'If, he expects, perhaps hopes, he will be recognized, and he's not. And then he realizes that operating in plain sight, 
when nobody is ever going to expect to see the real him again. They think he's long dead. They've even forgotten what he looks like, or he just doesn't look like the same young man he was when he was taken away on false charges. If he can operate in plain sight, well then, he has all the freer of a hand to personally set up his revenge against those who sent him off to prison and stole the life that was rightfully his. It's interesting in the case of Joseph that all of those same complexities, difficulties, inclinations, feelings, struggles, temptations would be in play for Joseph. And yet, what does he do? He definitely toys with his brothers. He definitely is playing with them. But in the end, he reveals himself. And he says an amazing thing. What you intended for evil, God used for the good. That's remarkable. That's something that the social justice warriors, the critical race theorists, the people who just can't get enough of their anger and hate with woke ideology, they don't know and they don't understand. And we may have to demonstrate it in a practical sense. If they win the day, it will not be but for God allowing them to. And if they win the day, they will do horrible, awful things. They've already been awful and ugly to decent people, to honest people, to innocent and even naive people, but they will do still worse things, plotting murder and then maybe settling on slavery for those they hate, for those they're jealous of. And we may have to, like Joseph, meditate on how God uses for good and works to the good, even what our brothers intend for evil and maliciously. God works all things to the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's spectacular. That's phenomenal. I think some of these personal details are put into the Genesis account here and there. These little character sketches, not because God didn't know what was important and what wasn't. Not because they're entertaining, first and foremost. They might be entertaining, but it's not that, first and foremost. As it seems to me, God wanted to communicate to us that these were definitely real people and these were real situations that you yourself could relate to. And he is the God who rules over and watches over and is faithful in the midst of those real situations with those real people because we have real situations and we are real people. And that ought to be a very great comfort. First and foremost, if it's entertaining as well, great, but it ought to be a very great comfort and it ought to be something that makes us wiser and steadier and less easily thrown off course or frustrated or despairing. There are some things in the Genesis account that I'll be honest with you. I debate whether even to read in this podcast. I, I read Genesis 42 for you, but I debate whether I should read some of the other items that are in the Genesis account. Now, I could definitely say, just go read it yourself and you'll see what I mean. You'll see. But of note is that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. That means even those parts 
where our eyebrows go up as high as they go, our eyeballs get wide, our mouth goes slack, and we say, what is happening? (laughs) The good Lord is acquainted with our human nature. He's very well acquainted. He knows the number of the hairs on our head. He knows every thought and intention of our hearts and our minds. He made us, which is to say there's no hiding, which is to say that might be part of the point that some of these details are in the text to convey. God is not covering his eyes because he's just scandalized and blushing. I don't think God blushes. Ever. He's not embarrassed. Not, he's not cold, but he's not squeamish. And so we look in Genesis and we see some things that might make us squeamish and maybe part of what we should understand from their inclusion in the biblical account is that God is not squeamish. Here a few episodes out. A few episodes ago, I was talking about Jacob's son's avenging their sister Dinah when she is taken and defiled by a certain Canaanite man who then says he's in love with her and wants to marry her. They avenge their sister. They avenge their family honor. They do this by murdering all of the men in that town. Now, I would say murder, but maybe some would say assassinating. They definitely killed them. We'll put it that way. They definitely killed them. And how is it that they made the men of that town vulnerable? Well, they talked them into getting circumcised. Whoa, 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 what? What? You and I shift uncomfortably in our seats. And whether it's right or it's wrong what they did, there's no getting around the fact that it's in the biblical account. It's included. That is to say, God is not squeamish. He saw, he knew. I'm sure there were consequences from a practical standpoint, also from a relational standpoint, but it's included in the account so that we read it and all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. Why this one? Why is this story in there? Why is the whole story about Judah and Tamar in there. Why is that one included? I'm not going to read it for you, but go read it. If it's been a while, if it's been a minute, read it. And it is, I, George R.R. Martin has nothing on the book of Genesis or the book of Judges. I read that and I think, whoa, oh man. That's not ever going to be a VeggieTales story either. And guess what? Tamar is one of the five women mentioned in Jesus' genealogy. Have you ever thought about that in relation to the story of Tamar? Rahab, also one of the five. Tamar pretended to be a prostitute so that Judah... Her father-in-law, or should I say, before her husbands died, one after another, Judah's sons, Judah 
had been her father-in-law. She pretended to be a prostitute so that Judah would get her pregnant so that she would have children because her first husband was wicked and God killed him. And then the tradition was that his brother would give his widow a child. But then he was also wicked, and so God killed him. And basically, Judah was refusing to give his last son, because apparently the easier explanation for each of your sons being wicked and being killed by God is that this woman is bad luck or something. And so she proceeds to pretend to be a prostitute and wait on the side of the road, and Judah impregnates her. Then she's found to be with child, and Judah is going to have her put to death. I think in part because it's like, well, she was bad luck. I blame her for what happened to my sons. Finally, a chance to be rid of her. She's pregnant by somebody, but it's definitely not one of Judah's sons. And so he just assumes that she's been fooling around. The hypocrite is the one she's been fooling around with. Tamar is listed in the genealogy of Jesus, which is wild and shocking, but all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. There's something important to that. I'm not going to delve into all of what that could be. I'm not going to speculate right here. Suffice to say, if all scripture is breathed out by God, and it is, and profitable, and it is, that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work, and it is, That includes the very small details that are entirely mysterious to us and even shocking and even make us blush. Rahab is a prostitute. She is not pretending to be a prostitute. She actually is when we are first introduced to her as the spies are coming into the land of Canaan to scope out Jericho. Rahab hides them because she's heard about Israel and she's heard about their God And she believes that they will win. And she's wise to believe that. And she's wise to get favor by helping them. She stops being a prostitute and she is married in the end to an Israelite. And she makes it into the genealogy of Jesus. Again, that's wild. That's wild stuff. Not... She pretended to be a prostitute. Not some people called her ugly names. No, she was literally straight up a prostitute. Ruth, by the way, Ruth, not a prostitute, but Ruth is married by the end of the story. She is married to somebody different at the beginning of the story, but she's married to, by the end of the story of Ruth, the son of Rahab. Ruth marries Rahab's son, Boaz. That's her second marriage. Ruth is a Moabitess. She is not an Israelite. She's not from around there. She is tirelessly loyal to Naomi, her mother-in-law. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God, she says. And she's rewarded handsomely for it. Naomi, for her part, says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. For the Lord has made me bitter because her husband and her sons have been killed, have died. And yet she has Ruth caring for her, looking after her, who again is liable to be mistreated and abused and taken advantage of being a foreigner. 
in Israel, Boaz looks out for her and instructs his men very firmly, don't bother her, which is fantastic. Boaz is a great name, by the way. I like that name a lot. We've talked about (laughs) possibly naming our sons Boaz from time to time, as Lauren and I have had seven sons. Occasionally, we, when pregnant, when she's pregnant, we'll discuss what to name one when we find out that we're having another boy. Boaz comes up a, a few times in our discussions over the years because he's just he's a he's a great guy, just a great great character in the Old Testament. They're not all great characters, but Boaz is a great character. But Ruth marries Boaz, and is in the genealogy of Jesus, not for no reason, not accidentally, not because God just didn't realize what all is important, what what all details to include and which ones to leave out. No, it's significant. It's meaningful. It, it matters. It's important, even if it's mysterious, even if we're not entirely sure how and why it's important. Also to Uriah's wife, that is Bathsheba. Bathsheba makes it into the genealogy of Jesus. Bathsheba was also somebody else's wife. Tamar married multiple times. Rahab was a prostitute. Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth is in the genealogy of Jesus only because of her second marriage being to Boaz. Bathsheba was married to Uriah. And then David saw her bathing on a rooftop sent for her, impregnated her, and had her husband killed. It was a setup. Why is she in the genealogy of Jesus? Why is that? Is it important? Is it meaningful? Is it significant? Yes, because God is a God of order, not a God of chaos. It's not random. It's not pointless. Why, though? Let's say that there's a reason. Let's say we agree. Hey, there's some special purpose that God has here. What is that purpose? I don't know. But what if we found out? What if we (laughs) searched it and pondered and contemplated and discussed and meditated and studied and we found out? What if we figured it out? Proverbs 25.2 should be always before you when you study God's word. When you ponder his ways, it is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings to search things out. Think Easter egg hunt. Think a treasure hunt. Think puzzles to solve. Now, what I don't want to do is I don't want to just bring all these things up to be a sensationalist, to shock you for sheer entertainment value or to get attention. I think some people do that. And I think that that is not good. I think that's not so good. That's not a good thing to do. Don't do that. (laughs) I hope I'm not doing that. I hope you don't suspect me of doing that. But I bring it up because the opposite is just as bad. It has to be just as bad. We're not supposed to add to God's word, even a jot or tittle. Cursed is anybody who adds to the book. 
as we were just recently going over in two episodes ago, discussion of the Queen James Bible. Also, God have mercy on us if we take away anything from God's word. Now, I'm not saying that we understand it all, but when we don't understand, God gives grace to the humble. And I dare say, grace, when we just admit, hey, I don't know what this means. I don't understand it, but I believe it. I I believe this must be true. That grace could be half the point other times. You know, part of the point might be that these things are included so that we would understand the character of God, also understand the nature of our sin problem, also understand how good God is, that he's faithful even when we are unfaithful. Sure, absolutely, absolutely. Is that a point with the inclusion of some of these? Yes, I believe so. Is that the only point? I don't I don't think so. Sometimes when we come to passages like these that we find in Genesis and there's a difficulty, we may rush too quickly to an easy explanation that we favor. And if you come to an understanding, you think, hey, I, I read this, 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 and this, and I've heard an explanation that I find convincing. And that's what I believe. Okay, good, good. And you can still be humble. Having a position is not arrogant, nor is refusing to take a position necessarily humble. It could be that you just refuse to be persuaded (laughs) because you're stiff-necked. You don't like the answer. You keep asking the question because you don't like the answer. (laughs) Studied ambiguity. Oh, God save us from studied ambiguity. But if honestly you say, "I, I don't know. I don't know why this is in here, but I, I know that it's good. Let's let's think about it. Let's study it. Let's ponder it. Let's meditate on it. Let's see if there are any other passages that would help us to shed some light on what this means. Well, then, that's kingly, I dare say. Romans 11.33 says, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and untraceable his ways. That doesn't mean don't try to search out or trace, but it's beyond you. And that can be an okay, that can be an okay conclusion to come to sometimes. Think of God's answer to Job when Job spends so much time, expends so much breath asking why the bad things have happened to him that have happened to him. When God appears, his line of questioning is not necessarily to explain all of his ways, except that part of what we need to understand about God is what Romans 11.33 says, how unsearchable are his judgments, untraceable his ways. If that's the answer, if that's God's answer, then okay, then okay. And this is part of why godliness with contentment is great gain, to be godly and content, in other words, is a good goal. That's a good goal to shoot for. Do aim for that. You know, the other, the fifth, I mentioned four, but there's a fifth woman who is mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus, and that's Mary. Mary, I strongly disagree with the Catholics. I do have a position on this. I strongly disagree with the Catholics who insist that Mary was a virgin 
for her entire life. That is not necessary and also dangerous. That's a dangerous assumption that you're bringing into the text. You're not reading that out of the text. You're bringing it into the text with you. And if you stick to it just based on tradition, but you can't support it from the biblical text, I am under no obligation to defer to you. I I don't and I won't. But Mary is a virgin when she conceives by the Holy Spirit. She is a virgin when Jesus is born. And I'm sure she is still a virgin for some time after. And then she stops being a virgin once she has recovered from carrying and giving birth to Jesus. Because Jesus has brothers. And no, I don't accept. I am not impressed by the claim that, well, brothers could be cousins. No. No, but I don't think so. Particularly when it says in the text that James identifies himself as a brother of Jesus. Particularly when it says in the text that Joseph did not know Mary, his wife, until she had given birth to Jesus. There is no necessity. There's no requirement for her to have been a virgin for her whole life long. And there would be no reduction in the goodness of God, the holiness of Jesus Christ. If Mary went on after giving birth to Jesus, she went on to have other children with Joseph. I think it's silly. I think it's very silly. And I think it's more than silly. It it is even dangerous to hold on to the kind of default assumption that would insist Mary, in order to be somebody worthy of our admiration and even imitation, needed to be a virgin her whole life long. No, nope, 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 nope. You're wrong. You're wrong. You might be very sincere. You might be very genuine. You might really, really believe that. But you no, nope, that's not what it says. That's not what the biblical text says. But let's back up to before Jesus is born. It's not for no reason that Joseph resolves to divorce her quietly. Also, it's fascinating to me that they're not even married technically, and they have not been intimate, Joseph and Mary. And yet, it would still be divorce for Joseph to put her away. They are engaged to be married, but that is to say that adultery is when the woman has relations with a man that is not her husband and she's married or is not her betrothed when she's engaged. It's not adultery if she is not married or engaged. I know that's uncomfortable. Again, I know that that's, ooh, what are you getting at? I'm getting at precisely what I said earlier with regards to the Asian uh, panel talking about Asian hate with Vice News, I'm getting right back to what I said there. If some of these people from all over the world are coming to the United States of America and they're saying, we object to whiteness being imposed upon us, I say, okay, you know what? I'm all, I, I am willing to hold in an open hand as a Christian, I'm willing to hold in an open hand as negotiable what we've inherited from the Greeks and the Romans. Absolutely. And even before you got here, I was ready to hold in an open hand as negotiable, what we inherited from the Greeks and the Romans. A lot of our default assumptions about Mary needing to have been a virgin for the rest of her life or about polygamy or adultery 
or serial monogamy and divorce or a number of other things, a lot of our default assumptions, we actually can't support from the biblical text. We have to admit they come to us by way of church history. And when you go back into church history, they come to us by way of, uh, in some sense, very legitimate desires and ambitions to do what is honorable in the sight of all in a Greek and Roman context. When in Rome, do as the Romans do, as I believe it was St. Ambrose once famously said, St. Ambrose being the one who baptized, discipled St. Augustine, famous for the city of God. But even just Mary and Joseph being engaged, if she had gotten pregnant by some other man, Mary would have been guilty of having committed adultery. As an adulteress, because she was betrothed to Joseph already, and he knew we have not been familiar, she could have been stoned to death, along with the guy who she had been intimate with, and the people who are all up in arms about women's rights and how women are treated. You know what? Don't start. Apart from God's word, apart from the Old Testament and the New Testament, women around the world would be in a much, much sorrier condition and state. And even in Western developed nations where there is no fear of God increasingly in the big cities and in the mainstream and in the halls of power, we still see women treated very, very poorly. But where God's word informs our ethics, our morals, our standards, our habits, our culture, women are treated exceptionally well and protected and honored and cherished and loved because God commanded it as much. But that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that you get to then pick and choose which of God's word applies to promote radical egalitarianism. You can't. You, you can't. When you read all scripture being breathed out by God and profitable, you cannot twist scripture to support radical egalitarianism. And also, too, you can't twist it to support a lot of what we've inherited from the Greeks and the Romans in the way of bad attitudes or just unnecessary attitudes. Is it permissible in some cases to just go with what the majority culture held in the Greek world, the Hellenistic world for the sake of having peace. And as much as depends on us strive to live peaceably with all men. Yes. Is it also permissible for us to say in the interest of peace, we're going to do as the Romans do when we're in Rome because we don't want unnecessary trouble with the Romans because we're on mission here. Yes. But flip side, the flip side is there's no getting around that apart from the immaculate conception, apart from God himself making it to where Mary will conceive and also still be a virgin. Apart from that, she's a scandalous gal amidst other scandalous gals in Jesus' genealogy. What are we to understand from that about the character of God, about the plans and the purposes of God, about the hope that we have in God? What are we supposed to understand from that? Hmm. Some food for thought, I think. Not just true of Genesis, definitely true of Genesis, but not just. But again, I'll say, I would encourage you, 
strongly do check out the book of Genesis. Do read and reread. I've definitely read Genesis before. I've read all the way through the Bible at least once. It's been a while. It's been quite a while since I read all the way through, but that's part of what I'm trying to resolve and rectify this year. But Genesis, now that I read it as a 36-year-old man, having lived a bit more life and experienced more, wrestled with more, been struck by unexpected circumstances, (laughs) I read this and I'm just like, man, you know, here's what it's like. Have you ever had a hard situation where you might think to yourself, oh, I wish I had somebody to talk with about this. I wish I could talk with somebody who understood what I'm going through right now. And then let's say, even if you didn't say that out loud, you, you felt it and you know that you felt it when you encounter somebody who actually has encountered these circumstances, like you are encountering these circumstances. You get to talking with somebody who has gone through what you're going through or something close to it, and they understand where you're at right now. Just think about how that feels. It doesn't fix everything. It doesn't make it all better, just like that. But insofar as the pain before was compounded by loneliness, you at least don't have the loneliness like you did. And if the person who's talking with you has some ideas, has some advice, some counsel, some guidance, well, then you might get more than just not being lonely anymore. You might actually get some practical solutions to help you figure it out or know what to do next. That's what we should expect when we come to God's word with the difficult parts, with the surprising parts. Oh, wow. This is in here. What? That's what we should expect. We should expect to find that God knows, but I got to run. That's all the time I've got for this episode. As always, thank you for listening until next time. God bless. been listening to the garrett ashley mullet show on anchor fm for more content like what you just heard subscribe to this podcast on apple podcasts google podcasts or spotify also check out the garrett ashley mullet show.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published as always you can reach me with any comments questions complaints objections or insights at garrett ashley mullet at protonmail.com